Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. He said, Mom, I'm in the wrong body. I'm not supposed to be a girl. When he said, I'm transgender, it was, okay, I need to figure out what that means. Our family struggled with our decision to accept our child as who she said she was. You want to cut the lettuce? I want you to just like cut little ribbons. Trinity she kept saying she was a girl. I like being a girl. This who I am. I told her, I know who you are. I love you. Don't be scared. Don't be concerned. Never. Because I am with you. And I love you. Whether or not a man believes he's a woman, there are a lot of women who would like to be able to use a public restroom in peace without having a man there. And, and, and these, are, these are zealots. He wants you to go into a girl's bathroom. Even if they don't support, at least try and... Even if it's a principle, just like respect. These are the consequences. The assault. The deaths the suicides. She's my heart. I don't want to lose her. Come meet us, meet my son, meet my child. There is no need for this fear. They're your neighbor, they're your, your friend, they're your coworker. In my case, she's my daughter. covering the Middle East for over 10 years. She's appeared in the Huffington Post, uh, American Herald Tribune, and several other publications, which is how I first met Alexandra. But I invited her on the show today because I wanted to talk with her about a life-changing story that she's recently went through in an area that she's now working in, which is trans rights. So welcome to the show, Alexandra. Hello, Tina. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about why you chose now to come out as being trans, what that experience was like, and um, just a bit of the story itself. Well, uh, you know, I, I did work in journalism and in Middle Eastern politics and writing about Middle Eastern politics for over 10 years. And the entire time I was passing, so to speak, as a cisgender woman, I... Um, I had all of my documents changed a long time ago, so uh, when I was traveling in countries where being transgender is offensive or maybe <laughs> outside of the law, I, I never had any problems because I was pretending to be this person, and it was a constant struggle. It was really a struggle because that was, that was my professional life, but in my personal life, I had, of course, friends who were from the LGBTQ community, and they knew 
who I was. So it was kind of like having a secret, and, and that was very uncomfortable. At the same time, I was doing a lot of work um, sort of as an activist or an advocate journalist for uh, a Palestinian English-language news organization. And I certainly didn't want to make myself this story. So uh, I waited about coming out and... Uh, you know, also while I was working as the director of communications for this Palestinian English language news organization, um, the Israelis raided the headquarters in Bethlehem and just sort of tore up everything and stole files of all of, all of us. And so I started thinking, you know, the, the Israelis are pretty big on trying to embarrass um, people who are supporters of the Palestinians, uh, they try to, it's kind of like a whole compromise thing with the Russians, you know? So I was, I had a little bit of concern that I would be outed and then I would be the story and it would somehow delegitimize the work that, that the organization was doing, which was so important. It was, it's, it's, um, an independent English language journalist, journalism co-op of, of, hundreds of journalists working together to bring the story of Palestine to the English-speaking world. So that was so important. Anyway, fast forward to December of last year, there was an individual who contacted me privately um, on one of my encrypted email accounts. And so he said that he wanted money <laughs> or he was going to, he was going to out me to the world. You know, I, I never, I, I didn't even respond to the individual, but it put the idea in my mind that I was about to be blackmailed by somebody over something that was, I shouldn't have been ashamed of, but I was. So I decided, yeah, so I decided in January that I would end my work and affiliation with uh, the Palestinian organization and, um, because I didn't want to, I, I knew that I was going to come out publicly as a transgender woman in January. So I worked with GLAAD and I worked with some other organizations to launch me with a new identity and kind of break away from some of the other organizations because I didn't want at all to, to cause them any, any problems. So I, I, uh, had great advice from people at GLAD. I had wonderful uh, uh, advocates for me. I came out publicly in January and I received so many uh, words of encouragement and gifts and <laughs> so many things. I got flowers and uh, and these were from some ambassadors and oh, I got a note from a former yeah, I know. And these are Middle Eastern ambassadors, too. And I got a note from the former prime minister, and uh, I was just kind of floored. I didn't realize how my story would take off. Now, it didn't, re it didn't pick up in American press, which was kind of good. I was, I was pretty proud of that. But it did pick up in the Turkish press because they love sensationalism. Yes. So the story of the... <laughs> The story of the Palestinian transgender, uh, I guess I'm the first, yeah, I think I'm the first Palestinian journalist to, 
come out trans publicly. I think so. So the Turkish yeah. press picked it up, and then there are a lot of Turkish people in Turkish press that's in Germany. So German papers, you know, tabloids picked it up, and right. it, it got into France 24. But it didn't travel far, thank goodness. And I didn't. I gave a few interviews, but mostly I just charged on. I uh, was asked to join the board of the of Trans United Fund. Yeah. which is the very first American Transgender Political Action Committee. Um, I was asked to join the Labor Committee of the Illinois Single-Payer uh, um, Organization, which is the Illinois Chapter of, of Physicians for Single-Payer. Um, I became an organizer for um, the Democratic Socialists of America's uh, Medicare for All program. I, jo I joined... Uh, the policy team for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and finally, recently, I recently I joined the forum at the Carter Center, uh, which is the mo that's the ultimate. You know, that's the top. So I, I threw myself into all of these things. Yeah, I threw myself into all of these things to try and sort of push my career into a different direction and. So far, it's working out, yeah. Let's talk about uh, the Carter Center for a second, because I think a lot of folks will be excited to hear that Jimmy Carter has an interest in this area. The Carter Center is his uh, <coughs> nonprofit organization. So you've been working with them on trans rights issues. Uh, tell us a bit about your work with, with the Carter Center. The Human Rights Defenders Forum is a gathering that we have at the Carter Center for human rights activists from all over the world. Our goal at this conference is to share information with each other, to gain both uh, knowledge and strength from the realization that we are not alone. And what we do is we create an opportunity for people to meet together, um, network, come up with common ideas, common uh, strategies for the issues they face. The biggest problem we're having is the problem of education, when people don't know what are their rights, so they don't know how to claim them. It's an opportunity for me to learn and share and, and hear other people's stories. And uh, we're coming from a session which was just teaching us about using technologies. This is hyperlinks. Uh, mobile phones, internet access, uh, using the blogging system and so forth. Those are things that I'd never thought about to be like a means of communication and getting stories out and all that. Our goal has always been to seek out those individuals who are really doing that hard work, very risky, very courageous work in their own societies, and find out how we can support those efforts. What we are trying to say to the government, or to say to the Islamic Authority, that things have to change. For those who feel that they have um, faced discrimination and injustice in the kind of narrow interpretation of Islam, then they see us as giving them a voice and giving them uh, a solution. If, if you were uh, to list in order of priority the most serious abuses against women and girls. President Carter is known as a leading advocate for human rights. During his administration, he placed human rights at the center of his foreign policy. And his presence in this conference means so much to me, seeing that a, a powerful, dignified person reaching out to the poor and the weak and trying to advance their rights and uh, basics they need as human rights, that is very meaningful. 
My name is Fatma Imam. I'm a research associate in Nazra for Feminist Studies. It's a uh, feminist NGO in Egypt. I was part of the, the front protection of the Egyptian uh, protesters. People all over the world are demanding these rights. The freedom to express oneself, the freedom to associate with anyone you want to associate with, to be equal under the law. When, when those rights are granted, so much more is possible. And one day, inshallah, our work will become less and less needed. I think they will take away a sense of empowerment and respect and a, a sense of forward motion and, and, and the power of a network that's been created by the experience. I think we're right on time. <laughs> As you leave here and, and go on your own, in your, in your own purview or undertake your own duties in the future, you can call on us. We'll be here. And you know what our hearts and minds are tuned to accomplish. While the Carter Center is in Atlanta, that is, uh, like you said, a nonprofit that President Carter uh, organized after his presidency. And Ms., uh, the First Lady, Mrs. Rosalind Carter, is also very involved. The Carter Center has... Uh, various divisions, and there's one called the Forum, and it's a women's forum on uh, power, privilege, religion, and violence. You know, there's an intersection between all of those. And so um, what I've done, what I, what I did was I'm, I'm collaborating. I'm a collaborative researcher on trans women, trans women and trans men's rights. Uh, in the Middle East, North Africa, and uh, South, South Asia. And those are developing parts of the world. Uh, some of those countries have been, have specifically banned the trans people, which is weird, you know, it's kind of odd. Um, but what I'm doing is I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm connecting with trans people from those parts of the world. What I'm doing is capturing their stories and I'm researching them and finding out what their lives are like and how, you know, what, what their challenges are. And so I'm uh, doing that work and, and we're going to put it all together into this research project at the forum and we're going to have some archives and presentations and, you know, it's, it's just phenomenal women from around the world. There are leaders and, and uh, educators. I'm, I'm like the, <laughs> I'm the least, I, I'm, like, you know, not an academic. I'm not, you know, a genius. And, and many of these women are. And so it's, it's a little bit intimidating. But at the same time, I understand that I have a particular uh, point of interest that I'm able to to capture, and I think that it's important because the stories of trans women, particularly who live extremely marginalized lives yeah. uh, in the developing world, they they deserve to be told uh, oh, yeah. because they're they're fighting, they're they're they're, they're moving forward every day. These women and uh, yeah, so I enjoy it. Very grateful to President Carter and First Lady Rosalind Carter. Carter Center is. Uh, it's a wonderful opportunity. It is, and I think, you know, it's an interesting point you're bringing about, up about these developing countries and the struggles they're facing there. You know, transgendered individuals have been with us since the dawn of man. This is not a newer thing. And in fact, uh, you'll find if you do linguistic research that there are pronouns that describe third genders. So it's not just 
him, her, you know, there, these pronouns exist in um, some of the ancient languages. And so it's interesting to me to see that somehow or another things changed in a lot of these countries. And, um, and I, I would imagine a lot of it's uh, religious beliefs. And I would want to ask you about that for a second, actually. I would imagine that it would be really dangerous traveling in some of these countries as a transgendered woman because of the viewpoints. But at the same time, when you were covering the Middle East and you were, as you call, passing as a woman, um, that was probably safer. Uh, well, I found that the Israelis, uh, many, are just like everybody else. They, there, there are some Israelis who absolutely support uh, LGBTQ rights. There are others that absolutely don't. Right, uh, right. There have been, there was a, pri a pride parade in Jerusalem a few years ago where very religious Israelis attacked. Okay. Chaos and bloodshed in Jerusalem. A parade to celebrate gay pride quickly turned into a nightmare. A lone ultra-Orthodox man armed with a dagger stabbed indiscriminately into the crowd, wounding six. I saw his face. He was a uh, religious, really religious. I just saw him uh, running afterwards, and people screaming and 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 uh, running everywhere. The attack happened here. You can see blood still on the ground. Eyewitnesses say police quickly arrested the suspect, and it soon became apparent that this was not his first stabbing. The suspect was identified as Yishai Schlesel. Three weeks ago, he was released from prison. In 2005, at the same parade, he'd stabbed three marchers. The Israeli courts later reduced his 12-year sentence to 10. After he was released from jail in an interview with ultra-Orthodox media, he said the struggle is not over yet. Jerusalem is full of those impure people. If one person comes and wants to stop the parade, he needs to do something radical. If hundreds of people were to try to stop the parade, they would be able to prevent the parade without stabbing. For years, Jerusalem's gay pride parade has been met with resistance from radical ultra-Orthodox Jews. One ultra-Orthodox website reported Thursday's attack, calling the march, quote, abomination and not pride. Some religious leaders condemned the stabbings. Government officials denounced it as a hate crime. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu released a statement wishing the injured a speedy recovery. He said, in Israel, everyone, including the gay community, has the right to live in peace, and we will defend that right. But given the 2005 attack and that Schlesel was known to police, the question many here are asking is, why was this allowed to happen? Aaron McLaughlin, CNN, Jerusalem. Yeah, so um, Israel has perspective. They do have laws protecting the LGBT, you know, much the way that we do in the United States. You know, not everybody in the United States yeah, is, they is do. okay with it. So I guess that would um, be another part of the conversation as well. But why do you think it is that uh, other Judaic religions are so anti-trans, so anti-gay rights? Is What's the history on that? Do you have a perspective in that area? Uh, you know, it's it's so weird, um, Tina, because the Al-Azhar University, which is a major Islamic university in Egypt, passed a fatwa, which is an, an edict that uh, trans people are not haram or are not right. forbidden in Islam. So this was uh, as a result of a doctor uh, whose name is um, Dr. Mercy, she went to, uh, to, to the high court 
there. She was a trans woman. She went to the high court there in, in Cairo to uh, the university, and she they they ended up declaring a fatwa. And so allegedly, those fatwas are supposed to be uh, accepted all across the Islamic world. Who knows? I'm not Muslim, so I don't know. But uh, so even though they've had that past, and I've known trans women who were, you know passing, just like me, who, you know, I met along the way, who lived, lived in, uh, I've been to, to Saudi Arabia and met uh, some trans women, and they, their lives were very fine because they were passable, and that's the thing, you know, if you're passable, if you can pass as the gender that you're wanting to express yourself as, that makes life easier. The problem is for people who can't pass, and those are the people who I really embrace because why should we have to, if, if it's impossible, why, it, it's just very difficult for me to understand how, maybe uh, because I'm the same, you know, we're the same. I'm the same as the person who transitions at, at 60 and has lived a, a life full of testosterone poisoning who really can't take back you know, their features without a lot of reconstructive surgery. I'm the same as that person, but I transitioned when I was a teenager, so it made it a little different for my, the way that I filled out, the way that my body grew. Um, so, to make a long story short, the people, the people there in the Middle East, it's divided. Uh, it's, it's definitely hush-hush, but there are wonderful uh, people in Saudi Arabia that absolutely agree with <laughs> trans rights. They just can't express it no. out loud. No. I I developed friendships with some of their royal family members, which there are thousands of, and many of the members of the Saudi royal family are very progressive. Um, the problem is they can't. They they have to leave the country mostly to right. uh, express themselves the way that they want to. Yeah. It's just unfortunate. And, you know, I mean, look here in the United States, we're not, we're not entirely progressive in this area either. I can't tell you how many conversations I have weekly with folks that still want to make the argument that sexuality is binary. It's never been binary. It's not binary. It's variant. It's always been variant. You know, you just, you can't make that argument. It's, um, you know, what Darwin would refer to as the spread of excellence. So it's not this or that. It's, it, it's a, it occurs on a sliding scale. You know, and often if you bring up to some of these folks that, that say these things, it's like, uh, what about these folks that are born with both sex organs, which is, you know, a couple percentage, um, couple, two, what, two, three percent of the population. And I guarantee everybody knows somebody that is trans, whether they realize it or not. It is impossible that you exist in this world that you do not know somebody that is affected by these things. So I just think it's high time. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's high time that we had these conversations and it wasn't a religious argument because in the same way that gay rights was always boiled down to a religious um, beliefs of what was right or wrong, I think this is a similar situation. Um, on that note, I'm also very alarmed at TERFs. Um, I'm alarmed at um, portions of the gay and lesbian community that don't want to embrace trans rights. I, I'm bothered by this because as somebody who, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a woman cisgender. I mean, I I don't have those personal struggles, but I do have many gay friends I grew up with in high school, and I, I marched for gay rights back, you know, in the 90s. Um, 
I worked on some AIDS legislation. So I've these are folks. This is an area I've, I've been involved with for a great many years, and they're, they're folks in these communities now that I see turning their backs on trans rights, and it's very upsetting for me to watch because I know trans rights or trans individuals were there for them. They marched for them. Why are these these folks not there for the trans rights individuals now? It doesn't seem right to me. Um, so do you have any of these conversations with TERFs in which they try to tell you that you're invading the female space? I mean, which is ridiculous to me. Trans women are women. It's, <laughs> you know, but you know what I'm saying, Alexandra? What, what are the conversations that need to be had in this area? Because I, I see it constantly, and it's definitely a thing that's going on. It is a thing that's going on. It's alarming. Uh, these people who are so-called TERFs, which is trans-exclusionary radical feminists, are, to me, not really feminists. They're actually misogynists. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a fringe uh, movement that has claimed to be the legitimate arbiter of, of feminism. But, you know, and, and, of course, there's Germaine Greer and... There are other personalities from the 1960s feminist struggle that have attached themselves to this uh, turf movement. But the, the truth is I really don't engage with them because I, I got to the point, listen, Tina, I grew up on a farm in Georgia as a Palestinian and Irish kid. And I, <laughs> and I, I had to scratch my way to Atlanta and then out into the, into the world uh, and so I really don't have time to engage with anybody who's devaluing my humanity or who's questioning my gender expression. So I don't even get them, you know, and I don't argue with them. But I do see that in the UK it's very popular now. You really, you know, it, it, what happens when you don't engage is that the, the person ends up screaming into a void. There's that. And, uh, There's that. yeah, so I... I really don't, but I see I see that it's popular in the UK for them to have uh, talk shows uh, where they have these uh, radical misogynists uh, screaming at trans people and yeah. trans people screaming back, and you know, there's just no debate to me about it. Um, you know, as being on the board of the advisory board of Trans United Fund, we, what we do is we work with. Uh, politicians, trans politicians, and uh, we work with uh, cisgender politicians to uh, to help kind of uh, elevate uh, trans rights to a national topic that's not about the bathroom and that's not about, uh, you know, these fringe issues or wedge issues that are actually about trans lives and youth and health care and poverty and uh, try and unemployment, you know, the trans people are in the margins of every category. There, there's a, a hurdle at every turn. Yeah. So trying to bring those issues to the forefront is kind of what uh, I'm more interested in than the trivial nonsense of fighting with people about our very existence. You know, screw that. That's not me. But um, yeah, some of those, some of those women are, and men are very, um, rough about uh, the way that they talk to us. Yeah, I didn't, I, I've only encountered one in person and I was giving a talk at a, at a small college in Missouri and uh, one of the professors there, a woman, she refused, she called me sir and, and Mr. Alexander. 
<laughs> and so I was a little, I was taken aback by that. But, That's obnoxious. Um, oh, it was. And I, I didn't even respond to it. You know, I didn't. I had, for a long time, my parents, when I was young, my parents had a problem with the pronouns they, because, um, well, I transitioned when I was a teenager. So for many years, uh, they had used one set of one pronoun and then, uh, they had to switch. So it took them a long time and it really hurt me every time they would mess up. But as I got grown, I realized that when someone transitions, everybody around them transitions with them and it takes the same amount of time. Yeah. Were they, when you first, I mean, you were teenagers, so you were still underage. How yeah. Yeah. How did that all come to be? When did you realize? Uh, well, I knew very early on that I, uh, was a girl, um, you know, I've probably from the time that I was, I think maybe in, oh, a toddler, I would go to my, my big mom and my grandma's house and she had all the, all her stuff, you know, beautiful, beautiful chests of, of beads and things from the forties, hats and wigs, bouffants from the sixties. And she had all this cool stuff. And I would go and put, I remember being a toddler four and three years old, putting, putting on, playing with those beads and all of this stuff is so beautiful. It was like, a, it was, and then I remember five years old, I would put on, uh, my, my grandma actually made me some dresses and it was our secret. Um, because she told, she told me that, uh, I could only dress up at her house. And so she was very supportive. She was extremely supportive. And I was five years old and she would buy me things that pretty things. And I, but I could only, I could only do it at her house. And then my parents found out, uh, eventually. And, and so there, there was a process. It was difficult. School was the worst. And I was, bull I was bullied out of school, and the day that I went with my mother to to leave school, um, the principal said that she thought that was a really good decision, and so, <laughs> so, so that's the kind of support I got in my little farm town in Georgia was, you know, instead of when I was being bullied to the point. Oh, and this was after my boyfriend had had died of suicide publicly in school in front of me, which was a complete tragedy. Uh, yes, less than a year later, I was bullied out of school, and the principal didn't even stand up for me. She said she thought it was a good idea. Um, and that was it was really tough to get through. But all of these things that happened to me, I think, have made me more of an empath because. Um, I relate to trauma. I, I really relate to other people's trauma, and um, I have a lot of patience with people, even if they're mean and they're they're showing their you know they're acting out their trauma in bad ways. I I recognize that because I've been that person too. So I just try to have a lot of patience. People. Right. Well, that's a positive way to work with it. Um, let's let's talk about uh, the, your work at the Trans United Fund. Um, I think this is important work you mm -hmm. do because this is working in politics, and this is where real change is uh, ultimately going to happen. So, how did you become connected with um, with Trans United Fund, and what is some of the um, advocacy work you're doing currently with them? Trans United Fund is chaired by a man, a trans man named Hayden Mora, and um, Hayden. 
and and a group of other individuals got together and they produced a wonderful minute, I think a minute and a minute or maybe a minute and a half ad. Uh, this is back in 2015 and it was transparent. It was parents of trans children and it was little vignettes of each one of their lives and how they went about their day. And uh, Trans United Fund was the financier of that small commercial. And I think it got on TV on MSNBC um, a couple of times. It was during the time when, uh, in 2015, when there were so many trans children being barred from using public accommodations at their schools. So this advertisement was put together as a type of PSA to show people, hey, these kids are just like yours. They're not some children that landed from a spaceship and, you know, crawled out into the school. These are your children from your community. So that was the point of the commercial. And then uh, TransUnited Signs kind of morphed into um, more of a political action committee. And then there's uh, another um, course, another trans, another part of the TransUnited Sign that works on advocacy. And then there's the side that works on um, political uh, sort of empowerment and, and moving uh, trans political, political figures forward. Um, currently, we are really working toward getting uh, Christine. Uh so here's the breaking news. CNN projects Christine Hallquist wins the Democratic gubernatorial primary in Vermont, making American political history as the first transgender nominee for governor of a major party. I'm joined now by Christine Hallquist. Congratulations to you. Thank you for coming on. Yep, thank you for having me. You know, this is a huge victory for you personally, but do you see this as a victory for all transgender Americans, all Americans? Yes, I do see it as a victory for all of Americans. But I will tell you, it's no surprise to me living in Vermont. I love Vermont, and uh, this is pretty typical for what Vermont is. Vermont's been a loving state, a leader in civil rights, and we're going to continue to show the rest of the country what good democracy looks like. Christine, you were, you were a former energy company executive, right? You were the CEO of the Vermont Electric Cooperative. Tell me why you went into politics. Well, you know, my passion was to show how the electric grid can solve climate change. And we actually got to the point where, we, when I left in March, where we were 96% carbon free. We were offering incentives to, to move away from fossil fuel heating, cooling, and transportation. And we did that without a rate increase so, for five years. So, you know, that was my passion but when I look what's happened in the rest of the country um, and, and in our state, November 9th of 2016 really changed everything. And I really probably spent 2017 in a bit of denial. Uh, but if I look at what's happening in Vermont, we are being impacted by what's happening in the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. And our governor is actually using the same tactics as the national GOP. Christine for Vermont is the campaign that we're working on. She's the first trans person to ever run for the governor of Vermont and to win the Democratic nomination during the primary. So uh, Christine is very smart. She's a, a terrific uh, person who, who's able to bring, legis bring legislative bodies together from different sides of the aisle. So I think she'll make a magnificent governor for the state of Vermont. And so TransUnited Fund is really working hard, getting out, knocking on doors, 
and endorsing her. We're also endorsing uh, a number of other uh, candidates uh, all across the country who are trans. We've never seen this type of movement of trans politicians, people who are from every walk of life who are not politicians, but who are running for political office. Yeah, and I think that it's really great. Donald, Tr- Donald Trump, if anything, has really lit a fire uh, in so many communities to get out, get involved, organize, take the country back, because it feels like the country has been stolen, and uh, all of the hard work that we've been doing has, you know, it's getting chipped away day by day by day. So, so yeah, that's, it's, you know... <laughs> Has Bernie Sanders come out and endorsed um, Christine? I haven't. The Daily Beast had a fascinating article yesterday about how Bernie Sanders is a rare and bold politician who's actually principled. That's super, super rare in a politician to be principled and to stick by it. So they spoke to some of the trans community who lived in Burlington when he was mayor. And they all had nothing but praise for him. So here's what they say. When it was wildly unpopular politically, Sanders backed a pride parade. In the LGBT community, word got out. Burlington was a safe place uh, for trans Americans. Amber LeMay, a 60-year-old self-described drag queen, moved to Burlington, Vermont in 1987 from Lima, Ohio. She says, I was impressed with the open and vocal gay community. There was the monthly newspaper out in the mountains, and there were frequent protests and demonstrations with gay themes. This was a new world for me. From what I understand, Sanders didn't do anything specific for the gay community. He just treated them like he treated everyone else. He gave opportunities, and the gay community took him up on them. Gay rights organizers had planned Burlington's first Pride Parade four years before LeMay had arrived in 1983. Many community members and politicians had opposed it, Bernie Sanders, who was in his first term as mayor, vocally backed the parade, citing the right to march as a civil liberties issue. issue, I I think it's great. I think the way you change also, the way you change people's perceptions of any marginalized group is to have those members of the marginalized group in public behaving in just the way they are. People can see like, oh, what am I afraid of? This is just this wonderful, normal human being. Why did I think this was scary? Because I think oftentimes a lot of the ignorance and... um, sort of hateful rhetoric stems from fear, if, if nothing else. Like, oh my God, there's going to be a boy in the girl's back. Like, all of this stuff is just fear-driven. It's not really rational. And uh, I think the more folks are exposed to trans individuals, the less that will occur because they'll see them as, as <clears throat> part of as human beings as well. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that you said that because for all of those years that I was passing, with cisgender woman, also I pass as a white woman, not an Arab. So thanks to my Irish side. Um, so all of these years that I'm passing as this this white lady going through the world, um, I never thought twice about using public toilets. I didn't. It never crossed my mind what bathroom to go into anywhere in the world because what we do, we we go and we use the bathroom and then we wash our hands. So I never thought anything about it. Um, when I came, when I came to, uh, Southern Illinois where I live now, um, it's, you know, it's okay. I still never think about it, but a couple of times, uh, 
I've been so involved speaking on the telephone and and Skyping with trans individuals who were crying because they had a bad experience um, at at a bathroom with somebody. And there have been a couple of times I went to a baseball game and I (laughs) was waiting in line for the bathroom thinking, I wonder if these people are wondering if if I'm, you know, this very tall woman, if I'm going to, you know, try to hurt them or... Because I'm 5'11". <laughs> I'm 5'11", five, five, so I was the tallest lady in the line. So, um, yeah, I had that thought, and, I, and it sucked because I'd never had that thought before. And that's a thought that was put into my head by this world we live in. Um, and it was, and, and I had come out, I'd come out trans, too. And so, you know, I forever... Nobody ever asked. If they had, I would, would have told them no. But now nobody's ever asked. Yeah, I would tell them yes. So it's just an interesting, it's an interesting situation. But I, you know, I'm all, I'm going to be forty next year, and um, it's really important for me to go into forty as uh, a more authentic person. And by doing the work that I'm doing, elevating these stories, reminding other trans people that their voices are important and and asking them to speak up. You know, I I hear people say, I want to be the voice of such and such community, but I don't want to do that. I want to amplify others' voices and let them find their own voice and speak out because that's the way that we organize in communities is by not being the spokesperson for community, but letting other people speak up for themselves and encouraging them to, yeah. With you a little bit, just to change course, about the news today, only because this is an area um, that you are so have so much expertise in. So um, this morning we had, um, God, you know, two things. The U.N. issued an order to lift Iranian sanctions. Um, for the United States, uh, you know, and I, I have a very big problem with sanctions. I think at the end of the day, all they do is harm poor people, and they do little to affect the wealthy elites of the government that are supposed to be the focus of the sanctions. I think we've seen that time and time again. But the other thing that happened is the Treaty the treaty of Amity was, which has been, what, since 1955? I mean, yeah. places mm-hmm. I ran for a very long time. So the United States in retaliation has decided to terminate the treaty. So this is a little bit stunning to me. I didn't see it coming. I think maybe maybe I should have seen it coming, given how many neocons Trump has placed into office. You know, and of course, I found myself thinking of the joke this morning that the only reason the United States hasn't bombed the U.N. is because the U.N.'s in New York City. (laughs) Yeah. This morning, uh, the United States decided that once the U.N. uh, court uh, ruled that the U.S. should uh, or must uh, end these terrible sanctions against Iran, the United States responded by calling the U.N. court meritless and by pulling out of the <laughs> pulling out of the 1955 Treaty of Amity and another treaty. Uh, in the same time, Secretary Pompeo was out speaking about the U.S. Uh, breaking these treaties and uh, calling the U.N. court meritless. There was uh, ambas- Ambassador John Bolton, who is uh, Trump's war hawk advisor, who was talking about the so-called state of Palestine and uh, Palestine's 
lawsuit against Israel for human rights violations. And somehow was making a connection, John Bolton was making a connection between the Iranian uh, lawsuit against the U.S. through the U.N. and the Palestinian lawsuit against Israel. Uh, Earlier today, Secretary of State Pompeo made a very important announcement regarding the president's decision to terminate the 1955 Treaty of Amity with Iran, a treaty Iran made a mockery of with its support for terrorism, provocative ballistic missile proliferation, and malign behavior throughout the Middle East. Today's decision by the International Court of Justice was a defeat for Iran. It correctly rejected nearly all of Iran's requests. But we are disappointed that the ICJ failed to recognize that it has no jurisdiction to issue any order with respect to sanctions the United States imposes to protect its own essential security under the treaty. Instead, the court allowed Iran to use it as a forum for propaganda. The Iranian regime has systematically pursued a policy of hostility toward the United States that defames the central premise of the Treaty of Amity. The regime cannot practice animosity in its conduct and then ask for amity under international law. In addition to the Treaty of Amity, I am announcing that the President has decided that the United States will withdraw from the optional protocol and dispute resolution to the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. This is in connection with a case brought by the so-called State of Palestine, naming the United States as a defendant challenging our move of our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Like to stress, the United States remains a party to the underlying Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, and we expect all other parties to abide by their international obligations under the Convention. Our actions today are consistent with the decisions President Reagan made in the 1980s in the wake of the politicized suits against the United States by Nicaragua, to terminate our acceptance of the optional compulsory jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice under Article 36.2 of the ICJ statute and his decision to withdraw from a bilateral treaty with Nicaragua. It is also consistent with the decision President Bush made in 2005 to withdraw from the optional protocol to the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations following the ICJ's interference in our domestic criminal justice system. So our actions today deal with the treaties and current litigation uh, involving the United States before the International Court of Justice. Given this history uh, and Iran's abuse of the ICJ, we will commence a review of all international agreements that may still expose the United States to purported binding jurisdiction dispute resolution in the International Court of Justice. The United States will not sit idly by as baseless, politicized claims are brought against Through the ICJ. So, at the same time, the Secretary Pompeo, just about at the same time, when Pompeo was, was delivering his speech about ending the Treaty of Amity with Iran, John Bolton was talking about uh, that, uh, basically undermining the Palestinians' lawsuit against Israel for human rights violations. So... It's really interesting where the United States is right now. You know, it kind of feels like we're a rogue regime, kind of outlaw, breaking treaties, <laughs> just breaking treaties left and right. It just seems to be getting a whole lot worse. I mean, Bolton, who is just, you know, not one of my favorite people from the Bush administration, um, he's just, 
You know, he does this oh, thing that's always driving me nuts. I call it I call it the Palestine sleight of hand. He has this argument that he puts forth that Palestine doesn't exist, never existed, ergo was the problem. That's pretty much the argument he tries to make. Which Yeah. <laughs> it's just sleight of hand. Like Palestine never existed, so there's no Palestinian people. Why aren't they why don't they all move to Jordan? Why don't they you know, he goes through this whole thing. But but the reality right. is yes, Palestine did exist. I, I mean to make the argument that Palestine never existed is absolutely ridiculous. And there was a time in you know, I mean you, we can go back to British Empire and all these other things, but there was a time when when Muslims and Jews live there peacefully together. I know Jewish folks that have Palestinian passports from that era. So um, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, we can, we can, we. I don't think we can talk about the problems that we are facing in the na- that area without acknowledging that Palestine did exist and that the indigenous folks there are transcend both religions. The Palestinian people are both Jewish and Muslim, and they lived there previously to the colonization of, of Israel, which is mainly European. Yes, My Catholic yes, Palestinian absolutely. grandparents that lived in uh, in Ein. Adam, which is a uh, neighborhood of Jerusalem. My grandmother had a fine china shop and sold silverware and beautiful crystal that was imported from Europe. And my grandfather was a veterinarian, a Palestinian veterinarian. He went out into the fields and checked on people's sheep and 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 cattle. And he he was he did that. He came to the United States as a refugee, um, also as a as a farm veterinarian. So. A big portion yeah. of the Palestinian population was also Christian. This is true. People leave that part out of the conversation as well. So that's right. And and Doctor Doctor Hanan Ashrawi of the of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. She is a, from a Christian family um, that is very well connected with many members of my family. The, the families, you know, in the in the West Bank and in Jerusalem are. Most are somehow related, even Muslim and Christian families that, you know, split or divided at some point in the past can find relations. But, um, yeah, there's, there's a very burdened Christian population in the West Bank, and those Christians are equally uh, oppressed and are fighting for their freedom. The Palestinian uh, front, uh, let's see, the PFLP was founded by a Christian, George Habash, that he was uh, the um, People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine. It was a socialist movement. Uh, He ended up being charged as a terrorist by just about every country. But in the 1970s, the PFLP were big on hijackings and things like that. But that was during a time when the Palestinian voice was being totally wiped out by this theory that we didn't exist, that we, you know. It's a two-sided conversation that, for some reason, two sides never have had equal say in the United States in the conversation. And I think people tend to forget that the state of Israel was created on acts of terrorism, the original terrorists there were the Jews that came in and bombed and bombed the Hotel David, the Haganah, the Ergon. These were these were terrorist organizations as well. Uh, so I mm-hmm. think that needs to be part of. The yeah, those were the those were the same groups. Those were the same groups who had uh, massacred the village next to my grandparents. Uh, the village next to my grandparents was 
uh, dairy are seen. Let me add to that. I, I, I have friends whose grandparents were part of that Zionist movement that did engage in some of these these war acts. And, yeah. And they will tell you quite directly that they were acts of terrorism. They don't deny it. So the question to me at this mm -hmm. point isn't really one side or the other side. Both sides have obviously engaged in uh, acts of atrocity, but I think that the underlying question is this. Why... Why did this happen in the first place? You know, after the Holocaust, the Palestinian nation took in several Holocaust survivors and, and welcomed Jews into that area. It wasn't because, and this was before the Balfour Agreement, this was before all of this, you know, I mean, we could literally lay a lot of the blame right. on the British Empire for this mess. It was just a bad idea. Yeah. There's no way this is ever going to end well or peacefully for all parties involved. And I don't, you know, I'm a strong believer that the state of Israel isn't, a safer place for the Jewish people because it makes them a target in an area where they've created an anim a lot of animosity just by the, the creation of the state itself. And I don't see how you ever de-escalate the situation, which is why we're at the space we're at now with the illegal settlements, uh, the, the horrible, horrible uh, treatment of Gaza. These things are the inevitable outcome simply because there is no place left to go. Either you completely remove all the Palestinian, Palestinian people from the country or, or it never ends. And I, and I think that that's how they see this situation at this point. And it's terrible. Well, there is, you know, it's very painful. It is, it's pa it is painful for all of, all of us involved. There are, there, there were terrible pogroms against Jewish people in the Pale of Settlement 200 years ago. The, the Jewish people were exiled from England right. uh, five, 400 years ago. The Jewish people have suffered all at the hands of Europeans for, uh, for, for thousands of years. And um, the Palestinian people, that the people that inhabited Palestine, welcomed surely these refugees in yeah. from from uh, Europe and helped them. They came with nothing. They would gather what they could, particularly in the nineteen early nineteen thirties, as um, things were getting very difficult and Jews were all of a sudden being told that they couldn't attend certain places in Germany. There were a lot of German Jews that, right. that uh, took refuge uh, by boat to Palestine and they were, they were welcomed. They were helped. Uh, they decided they would buy land and then they would build kibbutzes, uh, kibbutzim, mm -hmm. and they would have a uh, kind of communist sort of settlement the in, in the land of Palestine. Yeah. Sure, it was Jewish, Jewish socialism that was uh, based on communal order and every, and you know, the power of production in the people's hands, and it was kind of amazing, and, and these people were welcomed. But terrible things happened, worse things happened in Europe following that into the early 1940s during Hitler's final solution, where there were so many, six million Jewish people that were exterminated. And that's something that we still, I mean, it gives me shivers to think about the amount of humanity that went up in smoke. So um, then I think back to my grandparents living in Jerusalem in 1948 who had a, a roving 
a marauding gang of terrorists rolled through telling them that they had to leave um, and that they would be able to come back at a later date to collect their things, which never happened. And they ended up in, a, in an UNRWA camp uh, for a few years. They lived in a cave at one point with a baby. Uh, in the West Bank, and then, um, and these are people that my grandfather was a doctor, and my grandmother was uh, very. She was very proper and into crystal and silverware and china dishes and doilies and things. So they were pretty proper, prim, high street folks who ended up living in a cave at one point. Finally, they were able to get to the United States in 1951 as refugees, wow. and um, yeah. So, you know, I think about that terrible struggle that they had. One of their, one of the children died of malnutrition. Um, I think it's called pellagra or something like that. Some weird disease. It was a malnutrition issue. Uh, lots of children died. Many people died. And, you know, it seems like a punishment that was put on the heads of the Palestinian people for the destruction that the Europeans did to the Jewish people. And, it, you know, that's how it feels to us. Yeah. that we're the ones that were penalized for what Europeans did to the Jewish people. Oh, and, and, you know, if you look back on, on the early Zionist movement, Palestine wasn't the only area that they were looking at. It's the one that was given up by the British. Empire. No, I read that it was like Argentina, like yes. Argentina or Paraguay or somewhere and, like that. Uh, yeah. Africa, there was a spot, possibly, <laughs> but so it was, you know, uh, you know, it's like my grandfather was there. I don't know if you know this. My grandfather was there in Germany. He was in a camp. Um, so he came to the United States in the early here in the early '40s. He didn't really talk much about that period of time when I would ask him about it. He was um, he would just clam up and not yeah. talk about it, which is understandable. Uh, my father was raised sure. by foster parents in Sweden um, during this period of time. So um, I just you know I just it's I just think the situation is just a humanitarian disaster from start to finish and. I just don't know why yeah. human beings we can't seem to get beyond the tribalism that um, that that is sort of ingrained in our in our psyche that that all of these things stem from. You know, I think um, at some point, whether it's you know whether it's trans rights, whether it's anti-Semitism, whether it's racist um, ideologies, whether it's gender issues, like all of these things, kind of sort of stem from this philosophical need humans have of putting people into boxes and being tribalist in their kin you know and i think we need to find a way to get beyond this stuff because if we do it would make the world a whole lot safer and better for all of us you know what i'm saying i think it's so important what you're saying and it's something that i'm actually working on for myself because i recognize in myself these tribalistic qualities um that are normal they're natural they're, normal, they're yeah. we're born into a society like that of, of tribalism, like you said. And um, I recently left the Catholic Church after 39 years. It had The Catholic Church was very supportive of me during my transition. My priest was wonderful I've, I've, as a youth, and then I had continued being a practicing Catholic all this time. But earlier last month, there was a rogue renegade priest here in Illinois that that kind of started a war on LGBTQ people. Fortunately, Cardinal Cardinal Cupid of Chicago, of the Chicago Archdiocese, removed that priest. And now there are... And then after he removed that priest from that parish, 
there, there were these people that run a website called Church Militant um, that are kind of... Well, here's the thing. Sean Hannity... Um, uh, what, what's the other guy's name that was President Trump's uh, guy, the one that ran uh, Breitbart? Oh, uh, Steve Bannon. What, what was his? Steve Bannon. Bannon, yeah. yeah. Um, you got Sean, Sean Hannity, Steve Bannon, and uh, Bill O'Reilly. All of these were Catholic people. So it, it came to my attention whenever I saw all of this going down here in Illinois with that church, that, that priest that had declared war on LGBTQ people and burnt a, a rainbow flag in front of the church. Um, and, and now there's, the, there, there's a petition going around to get uh, the uh, cardinal from the Archdiocese of Chicago uh, defrocked and removed. And they're also against Pope Francis because he's made uh, some uh, strides forward for LGBTQ people. So anyway, I, I just witnessed all of that all at one time. It all came to a head for me, and I, I, I left. And I didn't say anything to my priest. I didn't, you can't leave, like, you can't formally leave the Catholic Church. Um, you can be excommunicated, but... Uh, if you if you don't if you don't uh, leave if you you know if you just stop going you're considered a lapsed Catholic you'll forever get their mailings believe me once you're on the mailing list you're on it but <laughs> it's, <the same> <laughs> it's like Scientology it's like <laughs> the DNC the Church of Scientology and the Catholic Church once you're on those mailing lists you never getting off so. Um, that's basically how it is. Leaving, leaving the Catholic Church is pretty impossible. But I just, I, I said it out loud, and I stopped going, and I listened to Tori Amos's uh, record of uh, Unrepentant Geraldines, and it made so much sense to me. Really good, really good record. And so, yeah, um, so it helped me. It was hard. It's still hard. It's new and fresh for me to say I'm not a Catholic, because once you're, you know, I just, uh, immediately, I decided to become a member of the Unitarian Universalists oh, of America. Okay. So I sent, I, I, yeah, I became a member of, of UUA and sent them some money. And uh, I kind of like the idea that, you know, they're wanderers too and just for people searching. And, and so I need community because I, because I was a practicing Catholic that so went to Mass and prayed. And so I needed a community to help me to uh, to transition. We, humans, that's the other thing that we so need is, is support from our fellow human beings. And I think, you know, I'm an atheist myself, but I can completely understand where folks get support. And in fact, I had we had a conversation with some folks on Twitter, that, Twitter the other day on this because Michael Graham and I were discussing this. I think too many folks... Um, on the left who are atheists tend to write off the religious left. And the religious left is a really important part of our solidarity. They're an important part of, um, of progress uh, and of, of an area where we need to, I think it's an area we need to reach out to more folks on and communicate with in a better way because I don't, when you sort of get into, into this Richard Dawkins level hatred against religious people, I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's right. And I sure as hell don't think it's leftist. No. You know what I'm saying? I can understand why people have beefs. Right with the American Taliban. I have those same animosities. I don't want the country to turn into, 
you know, uh, The Handmaiden's Tale or whatever. Those, but those folks are very hateful individuals. But that doesn't mean that everybody that believes in God or a form of a God like a like Spinoza, who believes God is nature, nature's and God, we're all part of the same energy, so to speak. I think these viewpoints can have merit, and I don't think it's it's right for anybody on the left to automatically exclude or be exclusionary of anybody that has a religious belief simply because they think atheism has to be the way. I, I think that that's dogmatic. I don't think it's right. So... Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting you bring that up because I do think it's an area of, of we could work on as activists. We definitely must work on it. I've seen, like you said, people who are so on the left who are very nasty to people of faith and uh, who are also leftists. Um, there's room. There's definitely room for there's room for people who have faith. Uh, in something greater than themselves yeah. in the leftist movement, because primarily the majority of people in the leftist movement have traditionally uh, believed in something greater than themselves, even if it wasn't a faith, you know, the, just the belief in the human spirit. Yeah. Everything involved in an abortion is sin and it's wrong. No woman should be judged because these decisions are never easy. The child is ripped limb from limb while his heart is still beating. I'm a mother. I loved my pregnancies. Because it's beautiful. But it is not that way for everyone. There's no reason to make it more and more difficult and drive women back into the shadows of illegal abortions. Since 2010, 300 abortion restrictions have been passed in this country. Many people are unaware of how restricted abortion has become. The legislative priority needs to be something that will stop abortions. One in four women will have an abortion in their life. And when I think about how politicized this has become, I wonder, how did this happen? It's the basis of democracy that you control your own body. I'm tired of the Republican Party bullying women when it comes to their right to choose. The Republican Party's party of life. Women are using coat hangers. They kill people for a living here. The abortion battle has taken a violent turn. Every abortion clinic is a potential target. So the question is, who gets to make the decision? Is it the woman or is it the government? Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. In a monumental moment for the Supreme Court, Justice Anthony Kennedy is retiring. There is a very real concern that Trump is going to appoint anti-abortion judges. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. We've been very effective in targeting abortionists. When abortion clinics close, babies get saved. The idea that we would go back to that was just unbearable to me. No, I'll stay. Again. If doctors can't perform the procedure or clinics can't keep their doors open, then what are we left with? This great documentary on Netflix called Reversing Row, and I did not know this, but from watching this documentary, I learned that. Initially, abortions in this country were performed by the clergy. 
So, which, which, oh, I didn't know that. I guess it's a bit shocking to learn this, right? Um, so before any of this Mm -hmm. politically, uh, religious political, you know, when we, before we got the religious right, the evangelical Christians, you know, doing what they're doing over the last 20 years, there was a time when it wasn't viewed that way. You know, in fact, Reagan, uh, in California had, passed the strongest pro-abortion laws as governor before he became president and undid everything he did. So there was definitely a change of heart, and maybe that's something we need to examine on the left. Like, why did we lose that ground? Why did we cede that ground so easily to these hard-right, hateful individuals? It doesn't seem, you know, and you're right, if you if you look at that and you say to yourself, well, Jesus Christ his teachings are more socialistic than they are uh, anything on the right, capitalist, whatever else. I mean, he's overturning tables in the temples. You must say to yourself, sure. some, yeah, you must say to yourself at some certain level, it seems like a natural dichotomy or a natural fit to um, to have solidarity with these folks. Why would we? Because it's it's it's, it's mutually exclusive. These things, there's very few things in this world that are. But believing in Ayn Rand and Jesus Christ as being <laughs> somehow two thoughts two philosophies that fit together, it's just not possible. You know, Anne Rand says that altruism is immoral. That's that's the basis of her entire philosophy. Jesus Christ is going to say the opposite. He's going to say yeah. altruism is moral. So these mm-hmm. things should not be coexisting, yet they are, and folks like Ted Cruz and folks like um, Paul Ryan, you know, go down the list, uh, Sean Hannity, as you brought up. So right. So to me, we... Sean some, Hannity. Yeah, mm-hmm. at some point we ceded that ground and it's something we should really reflect upon, I think. Um, that's just my two cents on that. Well, as leftists, <laughs> what, yeah, as leftists, what we can do is we can continue to... Uh, the way that we convert, so to speak, uh, independence, because, first of all, I've learned a long time ago, hardcore Democrats and hardcore Republicans are not convertible. <laughs> they are set, they are completely right. They are set in their ways. However, independent people who are open-minded to the idea that corporations are not our God um, and that production belongs in the hands of the people, therefore the power belongs in the hands of the people. You know, explaining things on a very... Um, explaining things to uh, individuals who are unfamiliar with the socialist left um, on a very, uh, I, I guess, elementary level is very important. I've, I've went to DSA meetings in various cities where people were quoting, uh, you know, Marx so much, and I loved it. But I thought, you know, people that haven't read Marx are not going to understand what the hell we're talking. What is this bread about? Why bread and roses? What is that? Yeah, yeah. So, and there's, you know, if the, if these, uh, if we're going to bring working people in, what we're going to do is we're going to make it a working people's movement, which That's is right. what it was and what it yes. is. What and we have to yeah. kind of, yeah, and, and the kind of intellectual social gatherings that we have, those don't help uh, us to, to bring people forward. We need to teach. We need to learn how, uh, from other people that are, you know, working people that didn't have the opportunity to uh, complete their education but have uh, trained themselves to exist in life in other ways. There's so many things we can learn from them. Yeah. 
uh, we can learn as much from somebody who didn't complete their education about life as we can from Chomsky, yeah, uh, you know, or Zen. Uh, just a diff- just a different tract of right. uh, of thinking. So. I think as as what we've got to do to bring others in, because we have a growing movement and it's building every day, mm-hmm. to continue that fire uh, is to empower uh, individuals to be less individualist, individualistic and more uh, uh, socialistic. Be one with the movement. It's not about us as individuals. It's, it's about us as a group working in solidarity to fulfill benefits that will affect us all, you know. And, yeah. And interestingly enough, when I was in catechism class, um, the Catholic Church, you know, we all have to complete catechism class. So when I was in catechism class, my teacher, my teacher was a priest, and he uh, introduced us to the idea that individualism was what was tearing apart the world, and the Catholic Church believed in... uh, not in individualism, but in the uh, immaculate heart of, of Jesus and, and all the people being connected together in that way. That was very socialistic, yeah. in my opinion, yeah, because, um, you know, take take away the people being connected through the heart of Jesus and people being connected through uh, working and through the struggle. Right. Same difference, you know, just take the religion out of it and there you go. <laughs> That's a socialist movement. We can address everybody in a way that they can understand as we, you know, move forward. But we are, it's a growing movement. There's a fire that was lit. Bernie Sanders is, he, he, one thing everybody can agree on is that he changed the course of American politics into a different direction forever. There's no going back. And he was responsible for that. He was responsible for that. Yeah. We are all feeling the burn. Absolutely. So you're, um, I am, I'm under the, I have the understanding that you're now working on a book. I am working on a book. Uh, it was weird. The first month that, that I came out, I had all of these people contacting me for different things. You know, they wanted to, for, for interviews and for, and then I had publishers and, um, people contacting me from, from, uh, news organizations wanting me to write op-ed pieces. And I just couldn't do it all because I, it was overwhelming. So what I started doing back in January was collecting my diaries and putting together papers and, and just sort of trying to sort out some things and working on a guideline of my life. And uh, I, I am writing a book. And so in December, I'm really going to uh, get into uh, working on the book chapter by chapter based on, you know, all of my documents. Because you know, here's the thing. If you write a book now in the information age and you get a date wrong, they will blast you as somebody who has lied about your own memoir. <laughs> so I have, yeah, so I have, uh, plus there are things that have happened in my life that involved other people, and I have to reach out to these people and see if it's okay if I, include them or if I need to change their name to something else and um, just to let them know and give them a heads up. And some of these people were not, were not friendly. Uh, and we've been, you know, not uh, in touch in 20 years, but you know, are, they're important to the story because as I have said, my boyfriend died of suicide publicly at our high school in 1994 
And uh, that was a pivotal moment um, in my life. Everything changed. Witnessing a death uh, of someone that I loved, but just witnessing a death at a, at a, as a teenager, it was shocking. And so, um, yeah, it, it was wild. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, getting in touch with his family will be interesting because I, I lost touch with him. I started transitioning pretty much right after that. Um, and so, uh, I haven't stayed in touch with his family and I don't know about, you know, if I, if I should, I probably shouldn't mention his name. So anyway, I have all of that work to do. There's a ton of research that goes into writing a memoir, but it's important. And I want to tell so many stories about the people that I've met along the way. And it's a challenge for me because I'm kind of transitioning careers from, you know, Palestinian uh, work. Um, I'm still doing communications. I, I'm still doing comms, political comms. But I'm, I'm definitely going to gonna write a book. And I'm hopefully I'll find a publisher for it. Maybe I'll have to go through all those emails from publishers back in January if they're still interested. Well, mostly back in January, they were telling me, we got to strike while the iron is hot. But, you know, and I understood that. If, if, I, if we had immediately, you know, they were trying to introduce me to ghostwriters that could, you know, throw together a book within a month and have it out. And so that, you know, it would be right there uh, at the same time that the stories were coming out in the, in the European press. But uh, it, didn't ha- it didn't happen. I didn't feel comfortable doing that. And I wanted to tell my story my way, so, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Which is how it should be. It'll be more authentic that way. And I still think it's a story um, people will want to hear about because you do have a unique um, voice, a unique perspective uh, on many levels. And I think think it will be successful because it will be authentic. I have never met another Palestinian, Irish, uh, transgender woman who grew up on a former plantation farm in Georgia 